available and welcome to episode 14 of Take It Black. I'm joined again this week by our political correspondent, Shani Wellington. G'day, Shani, what have you been doing? Hey, g'day, and to all our listeners, thanks for having me. Couldn't have been too dreadful the first time you've brought me back, haven't you, Jack? Uh, you got your Guernsey again, yeah, that's right. Um, this prove week, myself every week. Yeah, so it's not a <laughs> strong team. Um, this week, we are joined by Victoria's First People Assembly co-chairs, Geraldine Atkins, Atkinson, and Marcus Stewart, and also by the, a delegate, a Northwest community delegate, Muddy Muddy Man, Muddy Muddy Wamble Wamble Man, Jason Kelly. Um, hello, you mob. How are you doing? Good. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Take It Black for this episode. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. Well, I'm, I've been looking forward to it because last month uh, something happened, something significant happened as part of the treaty process down here in Victoria. And um, I want to find out a little bit more about what it is and why it's important and how it's going to work and what it might facilitate further down the line in this pathway towards treaty. Uh, what I'm talking about is this truth-telling process. Now, Jason, you brought the resolution to the Assembly, I understand. Uh -huh. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and, and why you brought that resolution, why it's so critical? Sure. So I guess in the lead-up, even while I was considering um, nominating for the election process, I've always been... Um, um, mindful of the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People as a really important international policy document. So having a bit of an understanding of that, I always considered that if I was going to run when I, when I was running, I actually made it part of my um, election mandate. My election campaign was, was to pursue, uh, was around, centred around truth and justice and pay the rent. So I just felt like that pursuing a truth commission or an inquiry, you know, and, a print, and also I just want to go back one, um, have an understanding um, of the, the UNDRIP. I was looking more into the, what, what else happens at inter international level that could be more supportive of us looking outside of the borders of Australia in terms of um, pol policy, uh, particularly around human rights. And that's where I started informing myself around transitional justice. And transitional justice is where I felt the great potential lies with addressing all the areas of treaty that would need to be addressed. So transitional justice consists of judicial and non-judicial measures implemented in order to redress legacies of human rights abuses. And then such measures include truth commissions and reparations programs and various of kinds of institutional reforms. So I've seen this as a very important uh, first step, the truth commission as, as part of transitional justice. Knowing full well that we're only, you know, we're doing the, the treaty, uh, the treaty framework. We're not there to do the negotiations. But I felt it was vitally critical that we had truth telling um, as part, um, you know, to underpin the framework. So I guess that sort of like, and to explain a bit more, it was a good way, I guess, of educating the rest of Australia in terms of our history. We know our history and the impacts that the Australian history has had on us. But a lot of people don't have that understanding. Um, of the effects of, of, of the Australian of colonisation and why, you know, when we talk about closing the gap of all the measures, how they're the ongoing effects of colonisation. 
And I remember, and like when we're looking at the high incarceration rates, um, and every, like we've got to deal with all the impacts of colonisation. We've got, you know, we've got we've got massacres, we've got the protection era, the assimilation era, soldier settlements, slavery. Um, you know, um, our prisoners' deaths in custody. You know, um, they continue. Our children out of home care. That's they continue in that crisis. So all of those, so all of those things. So. For the how do we, how does treaty deal with all of that? And I think I just really felt that that transitional justice and that truth commission was a good way of getting all of that out. But at the same time, educating, informing the rest of the Australian public because it's just made me start to wonder and start thinking. Because I was thinking back, and you look at the recent comments around slavery not existing in Australia, and when you saw the Black Lives Matter movement over there in the states, it just reinforced it even more. We had an Australian reporter trying to get a bit more information from, um, you know, one of African American brothers about uh, to get a bit of an understanding about police brutality, but couldn't and made the point that she couldn't relate it to Australian. Like, you know, we don't see that in Australia, and it was just, and it was just like, you know, really disrespectful for us. But I guess that it's made me think about the level of understanding that they really have because when I even think about um I finished school in, in you know I finished year 12 in 1990 and I remember Australian history first coming up in probably grade five and grade six and it was all about Captain Cook but then it went a little bit further when I was in high school but the only time you heard about Aboriginal people from when I was you know in the 80s was in high school was the Aboriginal problem for the settlers and I'm thinking that's the history that our seen you know police Politicians, magistrates, prison officers—that's the Australian history that they that they had. So it makes me start to think and wonder what impact, you know, in terms of our incarceration, all those things were closing the gap. What impact has that had on them? You know, are we still viewed as the native problem. So we can't change Australian history, but we certainly can change the way it's viewed. And the truth hasn't been told in the past and it still isn't been and we're seeing that you know cultivate in these different scenarios like when we're watching the media when we're listening to the pm what what our, our brothers and sisters and children are learning at schools so i guess this this is a question to probably geraldine and marcus when jason brought this concept uh to the assembly what how did the group receive it and where where did you want to take it from that first idea they the group were, were really um i think excited about about getting uh a, you know sort of the, the resolution through the chamber we had the chamber meeting as you said last month in june and uh it was put to the jason put the, well, the resolution was put jason's resolution was put to the assembly members of the chamber and it was passed unanimously um, everyone agreed that what we needed, what we did need to start the process, because it's really important that we have a truth-telling process as a, a, a precursor to uh, treaty. So everyone, you know, sort of, it was just a really exciting thing. It was a really exciting time that we were able to get it through. And I think everybody, everybody in that room, or everybody, we're all on Zoom, all agreed. Um, that it need that you know sort of a truth telling process needed to occur. And when we talk about that process, what is you know who is telling the truth, who's listening, and, and what does that look like in practical terms? It's a good question. Uh, I think right now in this point in time, we can all 
uh, define who's not telling the truth. But um, I think the opportunity, what we have in front of us, um, and I think just reflecting back on July 11th when the Victorian government came out and announced that they'd be backing this in, you know, that's an incredible moment in time for traditional owners and Aboriginal Victorians across this state. Uh, now we have the opportunity to work in partnership with the government as the First Peoples Assembly uh, to define what these terms of reference will look like. We heard Jason speak a little earlier around the contemporary issues right now and impacts of colonisation. We die 10 years younger in Victoria than our fellow Victorians. We're incarcerated or, you know, Aboriginal women in Victoria are incarcerated 15 times higher than fellow Victorians. We've got child protection rates through the roof and an overrepresentation in our, you know, correctional system. And then we look back, you know, amendments to the 1915, I think it was a Assimilation Act that actually tore our families apart. So where do we start? Do we talk frontier wars? Do we talk massacres? Do we talk, um, you know, the forcible removal of our children, stolen generation? I think right now what we, as we sit here and what we understand is Victoria have been great and our nation's been great at telling one side of history. We've seen recent dialogues over the, dialogue over the last couple of years around how Aboriginal affairs is continually used as a political football to divide public opinion and have the right wing turn on us. So now's an opportunity to create, uh, I guess, a happy medium of what the true history of our nation is and what that truth looks like. And I think it's our opportunity to speak it. It gives us an opportunity to heal as First Nations people across this country, but in particular, this state. But it also gives us an opportunity and the challenge. I mean, it's not gonna be easy, but to have a united Victoria in this stage moving forward. So what does that truth and process look like? I think what's critically important to what we do is that's driven from the ground up. It's through engagement with Aboriginal communities across Victoria. It's through engagement with traditional owners across Victoria. And they define what we are actually and how we're gonna go about this. So what the scope of it might be, what we, um, I guess, what we initially look at. But importantly, what supports are in place? How do you create if there's been 35 such commissions internationally since the 70s, what do we learn from that and how do we create a culturally safe space that our people can come forward and feel that they're in a culturally safe space and are comfortable enough to tell their truth, to actually you know, create a space that, one, they tell it, and two, Victorians can listen and hear it. But what supports do we have when they go back into their families, back into their communities? What does that look like? I think we really need to understand what the pre, um, I guess, process looks like, but also the post, because we just can't leave our communities vulnerable post this opportunity to speak their truth. So I just wanted to clarify for our listeners here that this truth-telling process, whatever it might look like, is not for the First Peoples Assembly to conduct. Is that right? It's very similar to the, as you said before, it's not, you're not negotiating. I think Jason said it before, you're not negotiating treaty, the First Peoples Assembly. You're there to uh, coordinate and implement a framework. Is, is that right? So, yeah, right. so, so from what I imagine it to be is that a truth commission is just going to be focused solely on past and present human rights abuses. 
where there'll be evidential facts and findings which will deliver those findings and recommendations. And then those recommendations must be considered by all parties that will be engaging in, in future treaties. So in terms of the framework, it's really critical that we have as much to do with that framework as possible. Uh, don't know what it's going to look like yet, but from my point of view, I'd, I'd love for it to be, you know, I, I consider that, that it would must be developed from traditional laws, you know, our people, not the invaders or the colonizers laws. We must use the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People whenever and wherever we can. And as we analyze the words, the concepts and forts, we always keep in mind the fort anti-oppression. So as we craft every section of the document, this is the way of ensuring that all our mob will benefit. Um, but more importantly also, we've got to get our mob involved and we've, we need to ensure that our elders feel the ownership of the governance in this. So what, what I would like to see to happen now, yes, it's great that the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs has come out and given this commitment on behalf of the government and said that we're committing to a Truth and Justice Commission. But I would like to see a full government commitment. I would like to see support from the Attorney General's Office and Department of Justice. We, if we're not going to get that, we're going to be removing the justice part of it. And at the end of the day, they're the ones still locking up our people. I want to see commitment from... Um, you know, Department of Health and Human Services, because our kids are still being, um, you know, taken away. So I'd like to see a whole government a, a commitment. But once another thing that's important, it must be independent. And I think that we must ensure an international jurisdiction because any evidence that's going to be coming into this is going to go beyond the borders of Victoria. And then we've got people like Russell Moore over there in the United States sitting in a cell. How do we ensure that he has a voice um, you know, into this commission also about the impacts of him as being stolen and, and the family, you know, um, what it means for them and his fight to try and get back home. Because if we can get all that and we can get, and we can, you know, this is not just a truth and um, justice commission. Uh, some people might call them truth and reconciliations. We have had 40 different truth and justice commissions right across the world, but this is an opportunity to change the language beyond reconciliation. You know, this is an opportunity to, from reconciliation to transformation, to change the language, because we've been talking reconciliation for 20, 30 years, but we're still seeing the impacts of, you know, um, closing the gap not being, uh, um, you know, not being achieved. So, and so, but when you have the Truth and Justice Commission, we're going to have these findings. How do we keep talking reconciliation? Like, how, what are we reconciling about when we are still healing from genocide? How we've got stolen generation members that are on their healing. We're on our healing journey still. So how do we talk about reconciliation? We're still having that healing. So transformation is a much more meaningful and relevant to all of our lives as first nations of our ancestral homelands. Now we look at the world now, the white man's world on this planet is crumbling. So we don't want to be part of that crumbling framework. Our strength as real people is our traditional knowledge and it's in that knowledge that we stand up and advance. So treaty underpinned by truth and justice must ensure our determining, self-determining rights to coexist independently under our own framework. Yeah, look, you, you mentioned reconciliation there, and I just had this conversation earlier today, actually. To me, it seems that reconciliation in this country, the reconciliation movement has put an undue amount of the onus of reconciliation onto Aboriginal people. Um, 
Now, there is, there needs to be a commitment, whether it's reconciliation or to a truth and justice commission or a truth-telling process. There needs to be an equal, if not, I'd argue, there needs to be more of a commitment from non-Indigenous Australia. How do you ensure that in a practical sense with something like this process? Do you have it, um, you know, one version that, you know, I've conceptualised in my head is, I guess, borrowed from South Africa is where you have something that is broadcast, um, a panel where you interrogate these histories and responses to them and policies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty much uh, presented right in the face of non-Indigenous Australia, so they can't shy away from it, so they have to reconcile themselves to that history. How do you go about it in a practical sense at a state level? Uh, there's a couple of things in that, Jack. Um, and, I mean, firstly, I've, I've fielded a couple of questions just in relation to what Jason said around the announcement um, and a bit of confusion for our, for our mob as well and probably for your listeners. But um, we heard the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs come out with that commitment, which is a commitment reflective of the Cabinet and the, uh, and the Victorian Government. So her being the lead minister obviously announces that, but it's a complete commitment from the Victorian State Government. Um, and, you know, what does it look like? I think... Yeah, you know, and it probably feeds into what Jason was saying as well. We've seen the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Royal Commission and we still see recommendations not implemented. What we can't have is another... We only get one shot at this. We cannot have another circumstance where this doesn't have a full impact on what it needs to do. What does it look like? If we don't learn from, you know, what we saw in Timor-Leste, what we've seen in South Africa through the apartheid, um, what we've seen with, um, you know, residential homes in Canada, if we don't learn from them experiences and what their challenges, challenges have been, what their successes have been, then, you know, we're going to struggle to actually get a process, a truth process that can actually bring everyone along because that's the opportunity. I think a truth-telling process, if we look at it from a broader Victorian point of view, it can start telling to the why, which has been an, often a question mark around it, to why we want treaty and what treaty can mean and achieve. So to your question earlier around what our role is, our role is the activation piece, set up the, the treaty negotiation framework to activate treaty making in this state um, and put the key pillars and resources around it through a self-determination fund and through an independent umpire, through a treaty authority. Um, but what's important is we won't determine as members uh, as co-chairs uh, or as um, an executive of the First Peoples Assembly, what this has to be. It'll be determined by the engagement with our communities, what they tell us it needs to look like, what it has to be. And that's what we'll take to the table with government and argue for. Because um, we've got one opportunity now in this nation to get it right. It's the first of its kind. But you only get one shot at this. So we need to make sure that it completely delivers on the aspiration and the decades of activism of our community. And you've spoken there, Marcus, on, you know, having one shot uh, and how this is historic and you've got to get it right if it's going to lead to a treaty which could be the first in our history. To try and capture the significance what would a treaty look like without this process, without doing the truth-telling first? Like, what could be the repercussions of not going through this 
compared to how it could turn out once you've done it? I think it goes back to that why. What is the why? So why are we doing, uh, how do we explain this to the broader Victorian community who sit there and go, why are we doing a treaty? What does a treaty actually mean? I think, as I said earlier, we've been really good at telling one side of history. And I think what treaty, uh, what truth telling can do, because we saw the Deadly Questions campaign run 18 months ago to two years ago. And what it really demonstrated, and the data coming out of that is Victoria, Victorians were ready to know more. They were ready to, to or they were supportive of treaty. Majority were supportive of treaty. But it even goes back to Jack's question earlier. We've got a significant amount of goodwill in our broader community through reconciliation. Now, how do we rec how do we transition the whole reconciliation movement, which has been built on a lot of goodwill, a lot of symbolism, into underpinning meaningful rights of what we're looking to achieve through treaty? And I think by a truth-telling process and understanding the true history of this state, that's exactly what we can set out and we can achieve through this process. But I'm mindful I jumped in front of Aunty Geraldine. So sorry, Aunt. No, well, I was going, I was going to sorry, uh, Marcus, for trying to jump in in front of you, but talk about uh, exactly that, about reconciliation and to, to Jack's question about how, you know, sort of what we do uh, in relation to uh, reconciling our history uh, with, uh, and what happened, you know, in the past with the impacts of colonisation to the, the wider community. And that, that needs to be done. And I, where I come from, I, I've, I've always thought that, uh, you know, sort of we, what we do and what, what we teach in schools is really important going back to what Jason was talking about, that he didn't, he didn't uh, learn about, you know, the true history of Australia. He didn't learn about the, that it wasn't it was an invasion process. He didn't learn at school about all those things that happened. And we need to be able to tell the wider community exactly that but about, about the past. But we also need to tell them what's happening now. So it's not just in the past, it's at those impacts of now and what's happening in school. When we think about, you know, sort of our young people, and it's really important in a part of this process with truth telling that we have to we have to talk to them. And what happens with them in the, you know, sort of with their education system? What happens to them when they go out partying? What happens to them when they're, when they're pulled up by the police and they have a, they're in a group of just not Aboriginal people, but, you know, sort of they might be white people. They're, they're the ones that are targeted. That's, that's still happening. You know, our children uh, maybe are still being picked up by police. They're on the streets being asked, you know, sort of what they're doing. They're, if, there's, if there's any crime committed, it's always the Aboriginal person, the Aboriginal child that, you know, that, that's, that, that's targeted. So we have to know what, need, what needs to happen. We need to, it needs to be an educative process and we need to start. And what we're trying to do, you talk about reconciliation. We've had a really good movement in early childhood area about getting um, Aboriginal history being taught at, the, at that early stage. And it needs to continue right through, not just through our schools, but into our universities as well. So all those people that interact, that those professionals that are interacting with our Aboriginal children, with our Aboriginal people, that are, that are making policies, working in, in government departments, that they know exactly why uh, those things, that, that, you know, sort of the things that have happened. 
to uh, to cause impacts the impacts today. So there has to be a lot of uh, a lot of intervention, a lot of prevention. But it comes from those people having to do that. It's those professionals that work in in government departments that are taking our children. And the reasons, you know, sort of those knowing the impacts that our parents or their parents have suffered. So it's about getting out. It's about that reconciling all of that. What you talked about, Jack, was all of that reconciling all of that and reconciling what is still happening so that the wider community that, you know, we're only 3%. So they, that, what, that you know, sort of 97% have to know that truth and know how they can work and assist in this process and assist in getting better outcomes uh, for our mobs. The education, obviously, it's a key component of uh, any pathway forward. But I just worry that too much emphasis is placed on, you know, educating and creating greater awareness of the sorts of experiences and histories of our mobs. Um, you know, what, and, and that will somehow provide a, a better outcome in and of itself. We've had at least, say, two decades. Let's just go from 2000. Um, an increasing uh, cultural, so I'm talking broad public cultural um, effort to increase awareness around, you know, stolen generations. Um, if we go back to 90 uh, or 91, the deaths in custody, you know, and, and the last, say, five years, there's been increasing um, spotlight on, you know, the fact that that keeps climbing up, as does child removals. So I think what I'm getting to is that there, there is awareness of these issues um, broadly in the public, but it doesn't seem to shift many people's you know, position on this, non-Indigenous people. Um, you still see the, the toxic sort of comments made on social media or on you know, comment threads below news stories um, as hosts um, on television, uh, programs um, said in Parliament. How far do we let, you know, what store do we place in education and when do we need to start bringing and implementing new policies and have those policies supported by state governments, federal governments that, you know, go a lot further than just placing, you know, all of our beans in that, that education basket? I'd like to have a crack at answering that. I don't think, Victor, one thing good about Victoria, Victoria's got really, really good policy and had really good policy reform. When you go back and look at Task Force 1000, when Andrew Jackamas as the Aboriginal Children's Commissioner was doing the inquiry into Aboriginal you know, children in out-of-home care, the one finding that he found that, that really shocked him the most, um, and this is, this is coming from his mouth, um, was that... Um, we have got really good policy. We have got really good procedures, but he was, the shock was between, was the gap between the practices and that policy. So you got that, but what does it look like in action? What does it look like um, on the ground? You know, and, and in terms of education wise, Aboriginal perspectives in the curriculum has been a national mandate since 2014. So what does that look like on, on the ground? What does that actually look like being lived right across Australia in all the schools? The Truth and Justice, the Truth Commission, is, I see two, two things for it. Like I know my, that my history, not the history that was taught in the schools. 
Stan Grant talked about his experience when he talked about his family and he was told, Stan, why do you talk about that ABO shit? That's also been my experience when I've been trying to listen about Captain Cook and listen about the native problem for the settlers, talking about my connection to my people in the country and, and out, you know, what history has been to us. Um, so we all talk about, you know, um, I've been going to marches ever since, you know, I could start walking. But one thing I'm starting to see is starting to see a shift. Um, when you look at all the non-Aboriginal people that are marching with us now, that wasn't marching with us in the 70s, 80s, and even in the 90s numbers, we're seeing a shift with a lot more of um, local councils rejecting Australia Day, you know, Australia Day. So we've already got that, that, that sort of shift. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about Australian history here. There's only one Australian history, and that's the correct history. So let's tell the correct history. Yeah, look, I agree. I'm just, just to clarify, I'm talking more about implementing policies that yep. affect these institutions that we see. Yep. And the other week, uh, the other day, actually, even where I live in St Kilda, um, down in Ackland Street, which is a, the you know one of the main sort of uh, meeting places, sort of thoroughfares, shopping sort of strips, um, there was a young Aboriginal uh, couple, um, and they were just sitting down out, you know, on the street. And the coppers rolled down and um, got out a whole heap of non-Indigenous people sitting down at the end doing the same thing, socially distancing, um, but, you know, hanging out, loitering in public in, in a time of lockdown. Um, but the coppers rolled up and went straight up to, you know, brother boy there and had a bit of a conversation and they got in their cars and took off. And uh, my wife went up and said, is everything all right? What's going on? And he said, oh, look, we're just... They wanted us to move on, asked us what we were doing. And meanwhile, 10 metres away, there's a whole heap of people sitting there. So there may be cultural um, awareness training that goes into training young uh, police officers in Victoria, but all that went out the window in the racial profiling that took place, you know, two or three days ago. Mm. So how do you go about changing that without policy? I, I, I think that I think that's a that's a, a systems problem, and that needs to be tackled from the top down and the ground up. It's a good question, Jack. Um, I think you know we're talking about people's unconscious bias. We're talking about you know the Australian psyche, and I think that was prevalent in the Tanya Day you know scenario where three hours earlier they'd. Um, I think they'd sent a white woman home in a taxi, yet they decided to, um, you know, lock Aunty Tanya up. Um, and we saw the devastating impacts of that. I think um, to go to your question, and I see the heart of your question, is we look at the sort of pinnacle of leadership in this country, the Parliament of Australia, and we look at the behaviour they exhibit, the way they treat Aboriginal affairs and how much it's politicised and it's treated like a political football. It's divisive wedge politics. I think what we need and what truth-telling needs to achieve is how do you change the narrative of our country to its true history and what its true history is along with our state? How does the diversity of our communities be represented in our parliaments? So if we can start seeing that shift in Australia's understanding in everyday Australian psyche, so... They don't have this opportunity to just 
switch on and switch off to Aboriginal culture when it suits them because that's their privilege. And that's the per that's what white privilege has been built on. They don't have to live and breathe what we do. And I think once we can start this process, it's an opportunity to bring everyone on along where it's, whether it's public hearings, like you mentioned earlier, or whether we look at, you know, regional, uh, you know, dialogues around this, I'm not sure that's going to be driven by our, our communities across Victoria. But um, I think there's numerous ways we tackle this. So if we're going to achieve strong policy, strong legislative change and significant behaviour change amongst our society, that's where I think truth-telling can bring everyone along on this journey because it, there's a connection that we have as traditional owners and as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but there's also a connection that non-Indigenous people have living on Aboriginal land. And so where do we unite on this narrative and where's this connection where we can actually move forward collectively as a broader Australia and a broader Victoria? You've got this big body of work coming up with the the reference uh terms of reference for that and you know how you go about that it'll still come to be we touched on it there marcus about the federal parliament and that's something that i've been working in for the last year um which has been a lot about indigenous recognition and something that i've been doing is talking to the different groups and the different models so i guess my question is uh you know, Victoria is seen as quite progressive in, uh, you know, establishing the Treaty Council and having the First Nation, uh, First Peoples Assembly. How does this play into that bigger picture? Because you can be progressive for in the Victorian state and be on your way. But when it comes to that bigger picture and for the country as a whole, will they be able to coexist if everyone else isn't able to get there as well? It's a good question. <laughs> it's a ripper. Um, uh, and I've got to tread carefully around this one. Um, but I think, yes, I mean, um, there has to be co coexistence. I think if we look at this national politics that we have right now, this whole nationalism, given what COVID's done, and we look at all these states claiming their, you know, their state sovereignty and whatnot, I think it emphasises the importance of um one localized treaties or state-based treaties but also this whole notion that you know we are you know nations or language groups amongst nations in this country you know where um we're diversely different you know with the language we speak which you know our cultural practices our cultural norms so i think um you know it has to be there has to be a coexistence of whatever structures are set up in each um, states, as you say, um, that'll change with us if we initiate, um, you know, localised treaty making, nation-based treaty making, um, where they exercise their own sovereign rights, that's going to change it again. You know, what is the iteration of the Assembly post, post that? But I think whatever's established nationally, and we'd hope we get to a point where there is a national treaty, that there's an opportunity to actually settle everything that's happened in this country. Um, I think there has to be, and I think Australia is becoming a lot more mature around this dialogue and what's needed. And we're just waiting for our parliamentarians to, to demonstrate the same level of maturity. We're, we're a hopeful mob, we're a patient mob. So we're, we're confident that they'll potentially get there at some stage, but 
now's the time. And I think we've seen states across Victoria, or most of them, come out with some level of treaty process. We've seen the Northern Territory now talking about, um, and Commissioner talking about, there can't be treaty without truth-telling. So we're seeing what's come out in the last couple of weeks here around a truth-telling process, starting to, um, you know, further develop in, in other states and jurisdictions. But um, I think the time is now, and I think we need to really see that demonstration from the federal parliament uh, on these matters. As you mentioned the NT, uh, we only heard yesterday or the day, the day before around um, that they've tabled a document, a, a final report um, about uh, Mick Dodson's work so far and the certain things needed uh, for the next step on that journey, uh, truth telling was part of that. Um, Aunt, just to, to ask you specifically, and then I'll brought it out to Marcus and Jason. Where Victoria is at right at the moment, and considering, you know, back there to those uh, forums down at, uh, on the on the banks of the Yarra, there at the Entertainment Centre. What advice would you offer Northern Territory? And even Queensland, who is embarking upon this this journey, what advice could you offer them about the process so far? Well, the advice that I would give is is to make sure that they bring their community along in that journey. It's really important that you get the community's voice, what the community want, uh, and that you listen to that. And then what you do is you design whatever process then you want in, for a treaty or those sorts of things occur in those states. But it's really important that, to get the communities, the community's voice, and then to be able to then engage uh, with government, particularly to talk to what you have to do. That, and, you know, sort of it doesn't take, take, it took, you know, sort of ages, forums and meetings we held statewide uh, to talk and then to get that, to get that advice and then just, to ensure then that we met with government, that we were able to talk to government, that we were able to get a premier, get to talk to the premier in relation to a treaty process. And then that's what, that's what occurred here. So it's really important. So two things, I, the advice I would give is to make sure that we, you've got the community's voice and what it is that they want with a treaty. And what you do is you get, you have to work really hard and ensure that you get the government on side in those states to ensure that it happens. We've been able to do, you talked earlier, uh, Shani, about the, the, you know, Victoria and being so progressive and, in, and being able to do this. But it, it, it all took time. Marcus said, you know, that we've had activists in this state over all those years wanting this, something like this. And eventually you, we get it, you have to get a government and to work with you and agree to it. So I would say that they're the two things, really important. Got the community voice, you gather that, you talk to your community, you see what they want, and you know what happens in the state. You talk to them, government, so you have that, uh, making sure that you're lobbying and you're negotiating and a whole range of other things that we've had to do over the last, well, well I have over the last 40 years. Marcus? Anything in addition to you know having that relationship with uh, government? Is, is there anything 
I guess more specific with engaging with communities, engaging with um, other you know, elements of the process that, that you'd recommend doing or not doing? I think, um, I mean, it's pretty cliche and I've said it a bit, but um, I've often described tree as, you know, the tide that can raise all ships and what the critical success factor to that is bringing our communities along because this is about them. It's not about who's leading it. It's not about whatever structures put in place to work with government. It's about a simple ask is how do we improve the lives of Aboriginal people? Um, and that's what we continually ask ourselves. And that's why bringing our community along on this journey is so critical. Um, so I just emphasize what uh, Arnie Jerry's just said. Jason, any constructive criticisms? Oh, so one, one, one point I want to make is that one thing that's really, I was there at Fed Square when the Premier asked about, was really how the Premier came about treaty. He was asking for Aboriginal Victoria about what we found about reconciliation and, and um, um, you know, and I was also there at Uluru too as, as part of that when, you know, when Uluru statement got delivered. So when Victoria came together and, you know, pretty much said that we we're rejecting constitutional recognition in the absence of a treaty because we'd already had, came, came into the Victorian um, constitution in, I don't know if it was 2009 or 2011. But the Andrews government was really good in listening and they had meaningful engagement with the Victorian Aboriginal community, which led to him making a decision to commit to a treaty. So... It's all about that continual meaningful engagement and proper consultations where you're actually listening and reactive to the, to the, to the Aboriginal people. So that type of, you know, that needs to continue, but we've got to really, really um, be listened to. And the one thing that I've learned out of this, when we've, we talked about the activists before us, when I found out that we wasn't going to meet as a chamber and we're going to meet by a Zoom meeting, Late the night before, I packed my car up and I went by myself and I went up home to country. And when I got there, I went out to the cemetery and I touched and I spoke to my grandparents and I went to my great-grandparents' grave and all the old people there um, that were in the Barrow Arnold Aboriginal Cemetery. And I went back to um, the house in Barrow Arnold, I was alone, and prepared myself for the next day. When the resolution was passed, you know, I, you, you could feel the ancestors in this and everyone around before that it was like a collective spiritual hug. And I, it was very emotional for me. And I went back to the cemetery also after that. And when I talk about, when we talk about all the activism and everything that our people did, it was always with hope. It was always with hope for better outcomes for our people. And when I think about all the work that my grandmother and my grandfather did, um, and then they went to their grade, they entered the dreaming, um, and although they gave their heart and soul to better Aboriginal outcomes, the data is evident that we haven't been getting better outcomes. And when this resolution came out, and I know we're gonna have a truth and justice committee, this is the first time I feel, I genuinely feel like when it comes my time to go, something has shifted. That hope has become a reality. So don't give up hope. Take it flat. Well, thank you all for joining us for this episode of Take It Black. Um, I've got a lot out of it. I hope our listeners, our listeners have um, a, a clearer understanding of not only the truth-telling process, that uh, the resolution that you brought forward, Jason, but also the role of the Assembly in developing the framework for treaty down there and you know, down here in Vic. Um, Shani, thank you for joining me as well. 
No worries. Thanks for having me. I think Jason summed it up pretty well at the end there. These processes are about meaningful engagement and reacting to community's needs. And that seems to be what's going on in Victoria. And we hope to see it uh, across the country and on a federal level. And I'm looking forward to seeing what changes and outcomes come from it. Now you can access this episode um, and others from all of the places you usually get your podcast from. Just give us a subscribe. You can join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag take it black. Also throw us a follow and we've got an account on there. And um, until we bring you the next episode, just remember, take it black. SBS is Australia's most trusted multilingual broadcaster. Our listeners are loyal, highly engaged and have supported countless local businesses. We offer advertising packages for businesses of all sizes. Our experienced sales team will guide you through the process of owning a great campaign. Bring your own ad or have our production team make you something in one of our 68 languages. Start the conversation with your new audience today. Email sales at sbs.com.au.